Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. I'm thrilled to be here with you today for our Season 1, Episode 25, Delights in Novelty. Today, we'll bring you an interview with novelist Jennifer Berg, author of the Elliott Bay Mystery Series. And, for our readers on the run, we'll feature a short story by an author you may not know, my good friend and fellow Canadian writer Brad Ling. Later this month, and leading up to our Canada Day weekend, we'll be chatting on June 24th with Canadian crime writer Denise, D to her friends, Wilson. Followed on July 1st, Canada Day, by former Canadian Parks Ranger turned mystery novelist George Mercer. Before we get to today's lineup, I've got to tell you about a fantastic book I've been listening to on Audible. It's by former White House speechwriter and Atlantic columnist and media commentator David Frum, titled Trumpocracy The Corruption of the American Republic. Narrated by James Anderson Foster and published by Harper Audio, Trumpocracy is a must read, or in this case, a must listen for anyone who is truly interested in understanding what is happening in the Western world. Exceptionally well-written, and we would expect nothing less from From, this work is also based on a bedrock of knowledge and research, first-hand experience in the modern-day conservative movement. From speaks from a place of undoubted conservative credentials. He speaks to both liberals and conservatives from all points on the spectrum. Trumpocracy is at once a cold, hard look at the truth and a fact-based horror story. It's a true crime novel that takes place even as the crime is underway. Frum's unrelenting reliance on fact-based evidence rather than hyperbole creates an even more terrifying view of the current climate. Frum speaks to us as a friend. He speaks as a concerned citizen with an exceptional inside view. He speaks to both liberals and conservatives, and his words are unrelentingly compelling. Dear listeners, I don't care what political flag you carry. I urge you, in fact I plead with you, to read or to listen to this important book, Trumpocracy by David Frum. Next week I'll be listening to and reviewing a book that was first published by Echo in January 2007. Kitchen Confidential, Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly, by celebrated chef and host of the foodie travelogue series Parts Unknown, Anthony Bourdain. I've already begun listening to the Audible edition, and it's clear that Bourdain possessed a remarkable power over the language. On June 8, 2018, Anthony Bourdain died by his own hand in Strasbourg, France. His death shocked though may not have completely surprised those who knew him best. Tony made no secret of the demons he had spent over half a lifetime courting, only to find himself forced to fight them in later years. I cannot speak to how his passing impacted those who loved him most. My heart breaks for his many friends and family, and above all for his life love, Asia Argento, and his daughter, Ariane. 
I can only speak to my own profoundly sorrowful reaction to the news. Anthony made no secret of his struggles. That is true. And yet, without fail, in his public life, he maintained that pirate swagger, that joie de vivre that was the hallmark of his zest for adventure and the unknown. I once knew another who wore that same mask. My own beloved sister, Debbie, took her own life at the age of 19, exploding my worldview, my life, and everything I thought I knew. In a future episode, when I'm able, I'll tell you this story. For now, though, I can only talk for a moment about the mask. So many of us wear it. It presents to the world a face of competence, of happiness, of passion, and of joy. These are not false images. At least, speaking for myself and my late sister, these are truly parts of our being. We do experience joy and passion. We do work toward competency in our fields and take pride in the excellence of our work. We do love our families and feel happiness quite often in our day-to-day -day lives. But as we know, or should know, depression is a sly and malicious foe. It's an illness that hijacks the brain's synapses, slowing the movement of serotonin and emphasizing feelings of worthlessness and hopelessness that already exist on some level in most of us. But we don't want to hurt or worry those we love, and we love so many people. We are afraid that if the world sees our weakness, it will reject us. How, after all, could anyone love the worst in me? How could anyone see that deep-rooted sorrow beneath the mask and still want to be near me? After all, our natural instinct is to recoil from anything negative, in case it might prove to be contagious. Again, I speak only for myself and my sister, my smart, stunningly friendly, and deeply loved sister Debbie. When she died, my family was overwhelmed by the sheer number of best friends who approached us by the hundreds to profess their abiding love for her. Thinking back, it no longer surprises me. Debbie was charming, witty, outright funny, and beautiful to boot. How could anyone not love her? This is the question we'll try to address in a future episode. How could she fail to love herself? As this illness of depression approaches epidemic proportions, we are reminded almost daily of the need for sunlight, for truth, for honesty. We are reminded to rip off the mask. And on that thought, we'll leave this sad topic for the moment. I hope you'll enjoy today's Readers on the Run segment. I'll read you a story by an author you may not know, Delights in Novelty, is by a good friend and fellow author of mine, Mr. Brad Ling. It first appeared in World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. I think it's a diabolical tale, and I very much hope you'll agree. Delights in Novelty by Brad Ling Editor's Note A Twisted Tale of Crime Against the Senses this riveting and unique story by Bradling is sure to delight and disturb readers. Some years ago, I was diagnosed with hyperosmia, a heightened sense of smell, so none of Colin's attempts to mask the perfumes, like slathering on aftershave or chain-smoking, could disguise the underlying stench of infidelity. 
So I put my superhuman olfactory bulb to good use by categorizing all his girls by their scents. During our first few years, he was covered in floral aldehydes like hyacinth and musk, most likely due to the popularity of Revlon's Charlie in the late 90s. The early millennium brought a bouquet of violet, blackberry, teased by patchouli. Then came a stretch of sandalwood, jasmine, Chanel number no. 19, and a sickening peachy odor that clung to him for days, even while we were away on vacation. The last few years have included cloves, cardamom, two more Chanel number no. 19s, a black pearls, ocean breeze, and a mild lilac stage. During particularly nauseating phases, I found an anti-seizure drug called topiramet suppressed the hyperosmia enough to let Colin succeed in his fragrance-cloaking attempts. It allowed me a break where I could lie to myself without conjecture, let alone proof, getting in the way. Unfortunately, topiramate gave me excruciating headaches. How fitting that the side effect of a clear mind was a headache. The final straw occurred the night Colin came home and slipped into bed, smelling of lavender and wearing a used condom. The condom was not the final straw, just years of guesswork finally giving way to proof. The final straw was what he said to me during our post-incident fallout. I love you more than anything in the world. And I believed him, because I loved him more than anything in the world. His assurance was followed by what I imagined to be the standard caught-in-the-act mea culpa, except without a shred of insincerity in his words. This coming from a high school teacher who can spot a lie quicker than a teenager can make one up. And maybe that's why I hadn't caught him lying over the years. He never thought he was doing anything wrong. After all, he loved me more than anything in the world. Believing him had been easier than not believing him, and now he had wrecked that. Now the guilt would eat me alive if I let it. No more clear mind for me. A clear mind was the least of Colin's worries. Soon after our confrontation, he was fast asleep, and I was in front of the computer browsing infidelity message boards. There were threads for people who just found out, those attempting reconciliation those who tried unsuccessfully to reconcile, advice for those who survived and lived to tell, and even investigative tips. Many spoke of suspected emotional affairs and debated if that was truly cheating. For a minute, I wondered if his, too, had been one of these, an emotional affair that had ended with a hug long enough to pass off a breath of lavender. Then I remembered the proof that had just hopped into bed. Once again, I was looking for an excuse. A topic at the bottom of the page between the dreaded D word and new beginnings caught my eye. It said, monogamy gene? Question mark. The poster was asking if anyone had used Dr. M's monogamy gene treatment. They included a link to a website. Out of the 30 or so replies, none had answers and all asked the same questions. Who had used it? Was it successful? Monogamy gene? Seriously? Who was that desperate? The link took me to a page that said Dr. M at the top, and in smaller letters beside the M was 
Anagami. There was a tagline at the top of the page in cheesy Comic Sans font. We want monogamy, but man delights in novelty. This was a play on Dorothy Parker's general review of the sex situation, a poem I had just, coincidentally, introduced to my 10th grade readers. A big black box appeared, with white text reading, Take your marriage back? Question mark. I clicked it, and the black box swelled to full screen. More text appeared. Would you like Dr. M to contact you in regards to taking your marriage back? Below this were two boxes with a space to input my name. I typed my name and hovered the cursor over the Y box, waiting for my mind to change. Before I knew it, the mouse had clicked, and an excited yellow screen flew in front of me, saying, Please wait by your computer, Mia. Dr. M will be with you soon. I eased back and bit my nails. Before I had time to rethink what I was doing, a man with a friendly smile appeared on the screen. I reached for the closest thing to a hat I could find, which unfortunately was an afghan. It draped over my shoulders like a Bedouin scarf. My image appeared in a small box beside a handsome man with dark hair who spoke with an accent I took to be Argentinian. Sorry for the wait, Mia. I'm sure you have questions. I peeked over my shoulder to make sure I was still alone, then whispered, Is there really such a thing as a monogamy gene? Absolutely. I've been studying arginine vasopressin, or AVP, for more than ten years. AVP is a neurohypophysial hormone that helps us retain water, but in our studies we found that with males, variations in the AVP receptor gene can lead to mate instability. This is what we call the monogamy gene. But instability isn't cheating, I said, my voice rising at the end of the sentence like I was asking a question. This variation affects pair bonding behavior in men. Monogamy, or lack thereof, is obviously not only a male problem, but so far our cure is male only. I would assume that is the nature of your visit today. He smiled, and it made me smile. Smiling when I wasn't happy had become second nature. Life was a put-on, so acting like others wanted me to act was not hard. So there is a cure, I asked. He nodded and opened a drawer that was hidden from my sight. When his hand emerged, there was a tiny pink pill in his palm. One a day removes the genetic allele, or the bad gene, and helps AVP to do what it's supposed to do, give your brain a high five for staying faithful. How safe is it? I asked. What are the side effects? That's the good news. Does your husband have large breasts? No. Too bad. You could have gotten two for the price of one. My Spexin is also used to treat abnormally large breasts in men. Mother Nature can be a comedian. I didn't laugh. It's safe, he said, and it's fast. So that's it? A pill a day? With any gene-altering medication, he said, there are always risks. Full committal is crucial in recovery. Your husband needs to want to heal and take the medication willingly. Of course, I said. 
We stared at each other for a few seconds before it became awkward. You have something else to ask? Something I need to say. Am I crazier than my husband for wanting to change his nature? Humans are monogamous by nature. Our genes prove it. We just need to fix your husband, not change his nature. I had to type my initials at the bottom of a confidentiality agreement and complete an online questionnaire to be approved to receive the medication. But at the price tag of $300 per bottle, I was quite sure the good Argentinian doctor would not deny one soul. The questions were easy. How many times has your husband been unfaithful? Proven once, assumed hundreds. Do you want to work things out with your husband? Yes. Do you blame yourself for his infidelity? Of course not. And with that one lie, I was accepted. By the time the pills arrived, I had decided I was crazy and Colin deserved a second chance. Who was I to try to change him? I had been smothering, overbearing, unattractive. I had pushed him away. It was me that needed to change. But two weeks later, after washing the sheets to get rid of a disgusting new citrus with a hint of mothballs odor, I found myself standing in the kitchen, holding one of those precious pink pills in the palm of my hand. Colin was reading at the table, patiently waiting for me to serve his breakfast. We wanted the same thing, and he would agree to this treatment. But how should I bring it up? And how mad would he get? He loved me more than anything in the world, and he would understand this was the only way to be together, to be happy together. I didn't want to leave him, but I would if the cheating didn't stop. I had to put my foot down, and if he got defensive, then I was ready for a fight. And like Dr. M said, full committal was crucial to the recovery. He needed to want to get better. Against my better intentions, the pill fell from my hand into his coffee, and a pink slurry became a gray cloud. With a little stirring, the cloud disappeared. He drank the coffee without batting an eye. Colin came home that night and went to bed without dinner. The first two days, he complained of chills and a headache, but guilty as I felt, I kept quiet. By the end of the week, his symptoms subsided, and I began to see the perfume-free man I married emerge once again. One night, about a week into his treatment, I was awoken in the middle of the night by a delicate and repeating tsk-tsk sound. Colin was kissing my forehead. He stopped when he saw my eyes were open. I forgot how good you taste, he whispered. I need to sleep, I said, leaning up and kissing him. Sleeping is surrendering. I've been sleeping for a decade, and I'm not tired any more. These nocturnal episodes continued to happen, though most nights I pretended to be sleeping. Most mornings, Dr. M's magic pill worked deliciously in Colin's coffee, and on hangover days in his Caesar. But those hangover days soon dwindled. He began to complain about feeling ill after his first drink, and mused that he might take a break from booze. Get back in shape. Start eating healthy. Spend more time at home. One night I came home and found the living room full of flowers. I was in heaven. One morning I was planting clover in our front yard when Colin's co-worker Vincent came up our path. Hey, Mia, Colin around? 
Out back. Everything okay? For sure. Just haven't seen him for a while. After Vincent left, I asked Colin what Vincent had meant by that. He's been away, he said. Then without taking a breath, how long were you talking to him? I shrugged. He frowned at the road. Colin began picking me up after school, even on days that I drove. I just want to be near you, he'd say. And I love you for it, but I like my drive-in. It gives me time to think, I said. What do you need to think about? I laughed. And aren't you going to be in trouble for missing so much work? Why would they mind? I'm the top sales guy at the office. His face soured and he held his stomach. I was sick again today. What's wrong? I asked. Playing squash again. Every time I start playing, I throw up, and it's getting worse with each new game. I knew what playing squash meant, but I didn't care. Soon he would only play with me. Summer vacation was closing in, and school events were ramping up. The hallways were ablaze with hope and smiles, and for once I was in on the joy and looking forward to the summer. During most afternoon breaks, Ava and I would sit on the windowed teacher's lounge. She was my closest friend at the school and someone in whom I could half confide. To half confide meant the luxury of offering half-truths. I could tell her that Colin had issues, like neglect and forgetfulness, instead of apathetic infidelity, and that Colin and I were receiving help for our issues, instead of me slipping him monogamy pills. In other words, she was a close friend. It's worth fighting for, she said, stirring her coffee and beating me down with tender eyes. No, they were condolatory. She hugged me like she always did when she didn't know what to say. It was more comforting than her platitudes. She squinted, distracted by something outside. I asked her what was wrong. Thought I saw, hey, there's Colin. I looked out the window and saw Colin standing by a tree. He was staring at us. I waved and he didn't wave back. When I got outside, he was walking back to the parking lot. I called after him and he turned and smiled. I asked what he was doing and he gave me a hug. Had some time off for lunch, he said. Thought we might get something. My lunch is over. Sorry, just needed to get out of the office. As I watched him pull away, Mason, one of my students, wandered over from a group of students that had congregated to smoke on a nearby patch of grass just off school property. Hey, Mrs. Pond, is that your husband? Yes. He comes every day, you know. I tried to hide my surprise, but it didn't fool him. For at least the last couple of weeks, he stares at you through the window. Someone said it was your husband, so we didn't do anything about it, he grinned except make fun of him. His smile disappeared and he became serious. Hey, are you okay? We go to lunch sometimes if I'm not busy, I said. Thanks for the concern, Mason. I yanked the cigarette from his lips and tossed it away, giving him my best stern look. He didn't buy it, but at that point I just wanted to get out of the conversation and hurried back to the school grounds. The next morning I asked Colin if he wanted to go for lunch, but he declined, saying he had a meeting with Vincent. Instead, I invited Ava to lunch at a cafe across town, so I could half-confide in her again. When we arrived, I purposely grabbed the booth furthest from the window. 
Just as Ava was touching my arm and giving me her usual sympathetic look, the waitress brought our food. When the waitress walked away, a looming figure was revealed. Ava and I looked up to see Colin staring down at us, red-faced. His chest was heaving. Mia, what's going on? I don't know, I said, finally telling her the truth. Get your hands off my wife, he said through gritted teeth. Colin, I said, standing up in front of him as he charged toward Ava. I've seen you, your hands on her. She's not yours. You need to calm down, Ava said. His face went the color of oatmeal, and his bones seemed to liquefy, then harden again. He gazed down into Ava's eyes, trying with all his strength to speak. Colin, I said with a forced calm, think about where you are. Ropes of anger twisted in his neck, tightening his vocal cords until he looked like he was choking. Though a large man, I never mistook Colin for intimidating, probably because I rarely saw him angry. But this was a new man. I touched his arm, and like a spark he came alive. Touch her again, he growled, brushing my arm aside and advancing menacingly towards Ava. I jumped in before he finished his thought. Stop it! I led him outside, feeling the heated stares of the other patrons. She is my friend, and you need to calm down. I see her, he said. She touches you whenever she can. I'm not stupid. Tears began to well in his eyes. I'm sorry, baby. I don't know. I'm so sorry. I'm just looking out for you. My head has been hurting. He looked like a ten-year-old boy. I hugged him and began to cry. Get some rest. You'll feel better soon. I haven't been well. Things I used to do make me sick now, he said. I can't, he considered his words. When I talk to other people, I feel ill. I threw up all over somebody the other day. Go back to work, I said. I'll see you at home. I can't leave you here. Why? I don't know. I walked him to his car and watched him drive away. It crushed me to see him so dazed, stung by an emotion he couldn't control or understand. After school, I hurried home. My goal was to flush the rest of the pills and finally deal with this head-on. As I pulled into our driveway, I noticed Vincent parked on the other side of the street. I pretended not to see him and bolted inside. He called my name and started to run across the street. "'Oh, hey,' I said, fighting to get the key in the door." "'Sorry, late getting home. Need to jump on dinner.' "'Just checking on our man,' he said. "'Must have had a long day, too. I'll let him know you stopped by.' I turned my back to him, but his footsteps got louder. "'Funny thing,' he said. "'He wasn't at work today. He hasn't been to the office in weeks.' I held my breath and pushed the door open. "'Mia, can we talk?' We sat at the kitchen table. The floor was filthy, but that's not why I stared at it. I couldn't bring myself to look at him. I'm the only one looking out for him. He's this close to getting canned. I need to know where he goes every day. I drew figure eights on the table with my index finger and smirked. Isn't that the question of the day? He worked his mouth like he was building words, but nothing came. I went to the sink and tossed a ceramic plate into it, chipping an edge off it. I picked it up and considered it a moment before smashing it into pieces. I heard him gasping, most likely trying to make more words, but he wasn't doing a good job of it. 
When I turned around, Vincent was up in the air. Colin's hands were clamped around Vincent's neck, and he was throttling him. I couldn't speak. Colin's teeth had pierced his bottom lip, and blood streamed down his chin like a rabid dog. Vincent's arms were frantic fire hoses, flailing in vain against Colin's strength. I ran over and grabbed Colin by his tightened arm. You're killing him! His elbow thrust back and smashed my jaw. My legs buckled with the force of the impact, and I fell against the stove. He let Vincent drop to the ground and ran over to me. He cradled my head in his arms. Are you okay, baby? You'll be okay. I'm so sorry. Vincent grabbed at the table, pulling himself up, sending plates crashing to the floor. Colin kissed my head and released me. He walked over to the still-staggering Vincent and kicked his legs out from under him. As Vincent fell, he slashed at Colin with a knife he'd grabbed from the table. Colin flew back, looking down at a gash on his abdomen. He dropped to his knees. Vincent rose up and kicked him in the face, and Colin crumpled to the ground. He leaped on top of Colin and began to punch him in the face. When Colin stopped moving, Vincent got up and reached for the phone on the counter. "'You stupid!' he said, reeling for breath. "'I was trying to help you!' He picked up the phone and hit three numbers. I ran over to Colin and got on my knees beside him. His face was a bloody pulp. His lips were parted and labored breaths formed bloody bubbles, and all I could think about was the smell. Before he became tainted with the stench of other women, I had fallen in love with Colin's scent. Most men's fresh sweat pheromone soon dissipates into a foul body odor, but Colin was different. He was able to maintain that pleasing essence even when his sweat dried into a salty film. It may have been a trick. My superhuman sense of smell was playing on me, but it worked, and it told me that he was the one. When he tried to impress me by wearing cologne, I told him he didn't need it. His true scent was everything I had ever wanted. Now, with one phone call, Vincent was about to take it all away. But wasn't it the right thing to do? After all, Colin was damaged. He was beyond saving, born with a bad gene. Like a bandage, one painful rip and let the healing begin. Sure, life would hurt for a while, but hasn't it always? I would learn to live without him, and sad as it would be, I'd be better off. The real Colin had vanished along with his true scent more than a decade earlier. Now, lying in a heap before me, Colin was giving off a new smell. And it wasn't the metallic odor of blood. That was just a mask. It was the smell of nothing. And it was worse than any perfume. Yes, Vincent was doing the right thing, and I needed to accept that and let him make the call. I don't remember how the knife got into my hands or how it got into Vincent's neck, but I remember his look of astonishment as he turned and tried to focus on my eyes. Next thing I knew, he was in a pile on the ground. I picked up the phone and told the operator that I may have just killed an intruder. Please hurry, I said, and told her to save my husband, that he might be dead, but please, God, don't let him be dead. A breeze blew in through the window, and I breathed it in, flushing my lungs of the vacant smell of death. Colin exhaled and his eyes fluttered open. I brushed the hair away from his eyes and kissed his forehead, allowing in his natural pheromone, 
the one I had long feared extinct. As weeks passed and our life returned to normal, normal? I thought about contacting Dr. M to break the news that genetics will always be a pushover for destiny. I was lying in bed with a book in front of my face, but the words were too blurry to read. Of course, it didn't help that I was staring past the top of the book at the wall. To clear a mind, a blank wall is as good an option as any. And it needed to be clear, because I knew what was about to happen. The downstairs door would open, the stairs would begin to creak, and a warm body would depress into the comfort beside me. The only question, what would he smell like? I tried unsuccessfully to recall all the words to that Dorothy Parker poem. The words I did remember became as blurred as the words in the book I was pretending to read. The blank wall held more wisdom. It held beginning, potential. My eyes blinked and focus returned. I opened the bottle of topiramate and shook a pill into the palm of my hand. Instinct made me grip my teeth, cue the headache. So the question of smell, would it be patchouli, ocean breeze, lavender, sandalwood jasmine? Did it matter? I want to tell you a little bit about Bradling. He's the author of two novels and over a dozen screenplays. As a scriptwriter, he's represented by integral artists, and his prize-winning scripts have been optioned as potential movies and television series. His history as a storyteller began as a film director. His short film, Johnny in Limbo, was showcased at the Canadian International Annual Film Festival, and he directed several episodes of the global TV show, Going Green for Green. His latest novel, The Doll Nest, is a dark psychological tale about the extremes a mother will go to to protect the most important person in her life. His latest novel, The Doll Nest, is a dark psychological tale about the extremes a mother will go to to protect the most important person in her life. And you can connect with Brad Ling on Facebook. And now I'm thrilled to bring you my interview with Jennifer Berg, mystery author. Jennifer grew up on Puget Sound, where she spent her childhood picking huckleberries, digging clams, and sleeping under the stars. As an adult, she moved to Seattle and studied history at the University of Washington. She loves classical mysteries, musical theater, gardening, knitting, and science. She currently lives in Southern California with her husband. She writes mysteries set in the 1950s Seattle because it's one of her favorite imaginary places. She loves strong female and male leads as well as clever mysteries that are challenging but not impossible to solve. Jennifer is a member of Mystery Writers of America, Sisters in Crime, and the Authors Guild. Her first book, The Hatbox Murders, was released in March of 2017. You can connect with Jennifer on social media on or on her website, jenniferberg.me. Hello. Good morning, Jennifer Berg. Welcome to Dead to Rights. Good, good. Now, you've got a great uh, traditional mystery series on the go. In fact, I think you might even have some other things on the go that we'll talk about. Um, but I want to have you on the show because 
while dead to rights implies it's primarily crime writers that I want to speak to. And in fact, I've been speaking to writers of every genre. So I wanted to make sure I get some crime writers on here too. Now you're in Seattle currently. Do you belong to any professional associations? I'm actually not in Seattle. I'm from Seattle. I'm a Seattle, Seattleite originally, but I live in Southern California. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. Wow. Well, same question. Yeah, I keep a pretty strong <laughs> Seattle footprint, and most of my family's up there, so uh, most people do think I'm from up there. Um, down here, I am a member of Sisters in Crime and Mystery Writers of America, part of the local Southern California chapter. But so far, I've been quite busy, and I haven't been able to participate in them as much as I'd like to. Yes, I originally started with Sisters in Crime here in the Toronto chapter, and uh, I love the organization, and I used to be able to be quite active in it, but the same thing, I'm yeah, just not, yeah. I'm more of a member at large, right, at the moment, you know, <laughs> but uh, I, I certainly am familiar <laughs> with Mystery Writers of America, and uh, they're a very good organization. A number of our crime writers of Canada actually also belong to Mystery Writers of America, so. Now, uh, you've got an... You've got a number of titles that are set in the 1950s, so I would think of these, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, as historical traditional mysteries, um, and you've got a major in history, so is that what prompted you to write this sort of mystery? Um, I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to agree with you. I actually had not considered that I wrote historical mysteries at all. It hadn't occurred to me in my mind. The 50s just didn't seem far enough back in time to constitute history until I participated in a panel just after my first book was out. They lumped me with the other historical mystery writers. <laughs> I realized that uh, what I write is considered historical. <laughs> um, but yes, as far as the same thing that led me to, to major in history is probably the same reason that I'm writing them. It's, I enjoy it. I think it's very fascinating. And I find that when you write history from a fictional perspective, there's always kind of dancing that fine line between whether or not you're writing an educational historical account and there's a mystery involved, or whether you're writing a mystery that happens to have a historical setting. And how do you deal with that? How do you divide the research from the story? Um, you can't. They sort of all mesh together, but my principle, the way I look at it, and I know not everybody necessarily, not other writers, approach it the same way, but personally, I approach it from the perspective that I'm first entertaining and writing a fun story, but that I'm going to do my darndest to get all the facts straight and make sure that the history and the setting is very rich and alive. But my first goal is to tell a good mystery. Yes, yes, especially in traditional mysteries, it's really important to to just have an engaging story because we still love our traditional mysteries. I mean, it's what it's what motivated many of the crime writers I know was these traditional mysteries. And even readers who have never turned to a pen love that type of mystery. So, so it's a great thing to start out with. Can you tell me some of the titles, um, starting with your first? Uh, published at this point. Um, my first one to be published was a year ago, and that was called The Hatbox Murders. Mm -hmm. Then at the same time, my publisher, it was kind of almost spontaneous, um, decided to publish one of my novelettes. And so just about a week or two later, they released The Tugboat Murder, mm -hmm. which is a short, you know, single crime in the same setting with the same characters, still 1950 Seattle. And in the next coming months, I don't have an exact date, 
my uh, second full length is going to be published, and that is Charlotte Murders. And then coming up about the year 15 months from now will be The Blue Pearl Murders. These are great titles. And I have to tell you, the covers on your, your uh, finished published works are just terrific. Can you tell our listeners your website address so they can go and see these covers? Yeah, my website is jenniferberg.me. And that's B-E-R-G dot me, M-E. Okay, that's terrific. And uh, honestly, listeners, go and have a look because these are just fun, wonderful covers. I really like them. Um, And if you are interested in traditional mysteries, you you can give them a read, too. Don't just look at the covers. (laughs) Who, Who do you like to read yourself? And who have you read in the past? Who would you credit with having influenced your work? I've heard some people say that, that they're compulsive rereaders. Um, they haven't really worded it as well as you, but uh, for myself, I don't. I tend not to reread, but I, I know what you mean about Poirot. I can watch any of the Poirot films over and over and over, just as if I don't know who done it, you know? <laughs> Yes, and I mean, every time thinks it is the dawn of a new age. I'm sure the 50s, uh, people thought they were at the dawn of a new age. I'm sure at, uh, in the 1800s, people thought that. Uh, in fact, I know they did. Um, but it's, it's, right. it's quite telling when you put it into historical context and you see how the ebbs and flows of that new age actually play out because the 50s really were just before the dawn of our true new age, you know? Um, Right, and it was such a huge um, period of change. You had so much, you know, the generation, of course, that had gone through the the First World War and the Second World War, and even if you look at particular groups, look at what women went through or look at people of color, what they went through, and there was such unique experiences and rapid change that these people experienced. So their 20s were not like their 30s or their 40s. A person in their own lifetime had a huge shift in change. And with the prosperity that came after uh, the Second World War and this feeling of people people who've never come from money, who've known huge hardship, suddenly having relatively lavish, comfortable lifestyles. Yeah. 
And I just I just find that to be a very fantastic um, thing to work with. I do I consider myself a feminist. I do definitely work with those themes in a gentle way. Some of the frustration that people went through, women who maybe worked or had a lot more independence, and now society wants to corral them a little bit more. Yes. Want to scale them back, or you know things like that have to. If I'm going to be honest to the era, they have to play into it. You yes, they do. Yeah, they absolutely do. And unfortunately, everything old is new again. I mean, we come back to that whole, I love the description you used of corralling us back into our pens, you know. <laughs> the image is, yeah. is really brilliant because we do, we see it over and over and over again through time. But in the 50s, it was in particular prominent because during the war, of course, the Second World War, women suddenly flooded the workplace. And that was... Yeah what precipitated some of the biggest changes we saw coming in the 60s um, was simply women in the workplace. It, it became a reality, and, you know, it, it was um, a driving force, so to speak. And so now to be told to go back to the kitchen, it really didn't sit very well with a lot of people, you know. Right, and there were women who did it, and there were women who didn't do it and kept working, and there were women who fought it. And, of course, as always, a lot had to do with your economic standpoint. You know, people who came from a lower socioeconomic background had maybe never had the luxury of being a stay-at-home, yeah. um, you know, mother or spouse, whatever. And so for those women, maybe things hadn't changed that much. They now just didn't have the good jobs anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you know, I had... a lot of it depends on where you are in society, how much change you personally went through. Yeah, exactly. That's that's very true. I had wanted to ask you about setting in fiction because I know that, uh, to me at least, geography is very important. But you've actually described time as a setting, really. Um, but to get beyond time, can you talk to us about uh, how setting does work into your fiction and how how those visuals and that feeling of a place works in? Um, it, it's a very, um, I'll do my best to describe it. I've, I've experimented with different things over the years. My I'm a very supportive husband who always wanted me to have an inspiration wall and put all these Seattle inspiration things on it. And I tried it and I was never able to make that work. What I do have is I have a very large retro 1950s map that I went up and um, I got from Kroll, which is the Seattle, you know, map makers. Mm -hmm. And I spent a good amount of research figuring out exactly, they, this one isn't dated. And I spent a lot of time with the, the guy at the company helping, he helped me to find the right map for the time era I'm looking at. So I do have a large map that I keep on the wall so I can get my geography and everything accurate. Yeah. But when you're talking about the more emotional feeling of space, uh, of setting, that's a much harder thing to do. And what I actually tend to do is it's sort of, it's a concept that exists in my head and I try not to pollute it with anything. I try not mm -hmm. to pollute it with too many modern pictures or ideas or even old pictures and kind of hone in on this feeling that I have inside me because that's the consistency. Everything else yeah. will sort of change and it can move and people can throw it off and knock you off track. Yeah. But if you can kind of hone in and find it again, so it's not it's not so much an inspiration within me, that sounds more pompous than it is, it's more a um, allowing distractions to move out of my space and to find the feeling that I had of just where I came from. Yeah, It's just, just the feeling of place. 
I grew up there, I grew up, like I said, in a different time era, but just the feeling. So it's not a smell, it's not a sound, it's not a particular visual, it's just finding that feeling and letting the other distractions push away, and then writing from that. That's very well described, very well defined. I, I like that a lot, because a lot of, especially character and story writing, it involves just moving moving as your character, not moving with your character, but moving as your character, you know, um, through, through the, I mean, a fish doesn't know that it's in water. A bird doesn't know that it's in the air and your character doesn't really know that he or she is in Seattle, but they are. No, they're just, they're just existing and living their lives. And when I did my, the first books that I wrote, my books got published in the reverse order that I wrote. The one that's about to come out, The Charlatan Murders, is actually the first one I wrote. Um, and when I wrote it, it took me the longest, and I had the most trouble with it. And what I finally did at one point after I'd completed it is I went back through the entire manuscript, and I highlighted in different colors. Uh, I think pink was for anything 1950s, any reference to, you know, uh, Eisenhower or taking the trolley or things that maybe don't exist currently, but it's kind of a little mental marker of the 50s, going to the cinema or the cost of something, a dollar amount being mentioned. Right. Um, I highlighted all of that in pink, and then I went back and I highlighted, rewrite it again, and highlighted everything that felt Seattle-esque or would help remind the reader of where they were in Greece. I really like yeah. that, that idea of you with a bunch of highlighters because I know exactly what you're talking about. I think that for readers who have never written, they've got no idea how handy a box of highlighters can be. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I've abused many highlighters. And it, it was it was a, a tedious exercise, but when I was done, I was able to look back at my chapters and see maybe three or four pages that run in a row with no particular mention. And I thought, this is where a reader is going to lose a sense of place or mm-hmm. a sense of time. This is where the setting is becoming irrelevant, and this could be any other story. And I really felt that if I wanted to make the setting prominent, because I really do feel almost like setting is another character. Yes. It's, it's that important, it's that central to the story, at least for, for mine, maybe it's, it's not necessarily universal, but for what I'm doing, it's very, very central. And so I went back and I actually made sure that I had a highlighted bit of one color or the other on every single page. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I like that. I like that a lot. One of the things that my husband said was uh, make sure that you've got some kind of a gem on every page for the type of writing that I do, which is a little bit different. And... Uh, I think that was one of the wisest things he ever told me. He said, uh, on every page, put a mark, and that's where you've got to put some kind of a gem because it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be even as big as a nugget. It can be, a, it can be just like a fingernail, uh, some, some little gem that tells the reader, I'm thinking of you, you know? Yeah, yeah, a little reward for going through the story, a little check-in to keep you along for the ride. Yes. I think that's really important to respect the reader. And if I... Um, I know that, that writing is, of course, a creative process, and it's an artistic process and all this, but at the end of the day, when I made the decision that I wanted to get published and not just write for myself, because I think like most writers, I've always written, and not everybody has to try to get published, but when I decided I wanted to get published, I really had to accept the reality that I was now moving into a business world, and now yeah. I had to look at it from a business perspective, and if I'm going to write for a reader, I have to consider my reader. I have to thank them. I have to reward them. I have to make them happy that they took the time to pick up my book. Yes, yes. 
That's some of the best advice that any of the writers have given, actually, to reward your reader somehow. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you for that, Jennifer. I'm going to be asking you for other advice, though. You're not off the hook yet, you know. <laughs> um, but before but before we get to that, can you tell me a little bit about um, anything that, that is different about traditional mystery series? I know a few things that are different, but for the benefit of our listeners, what specific skills do you require for traditional mystery writing that are not necessarily as useful in other genres? Okay, well, I don't know that I can entirely speak for other genres because I've never written. Okay, in all fairness, I did write one sci-fi middle grade reader years ago, but I think it was very, very terrible and it never got published. <laughs> so I haven't really written in other genres. Um, but I will say, and I, uh, let me start first by defining how I define traditional ministries, because the more I look at this and the more I interact with other authors, I realize that we really aren't operating off the same set of what does and, con does, and does not constitute a genre or a subgenre. So for me personally, how I look at traditional mysteries is the idea of a group of characters together. You, as the reader, have fair notice that one of them is going to get killed. Maybe one of them already has when the story begins that one of them is going to turn out to be the murderer, and that your sleuth or your detective is going to solve it by the end. You are going to find out who did it. There's going to be some sort of sense of justice in some point, and the story is going to turn out more or less happy for at least the good, likable characters in the story, um, except the one, of course, who got murdered. Right. That's how I look at a traditional. This is sort of the, the expectation that I think most readers, or at least the readers that I'm answering to, mm -hmm. um, a traditional mystery expected. So having prefaced it with that, um, what, I, what I look at and what I approach it with is a lot of organization. Um, when I start writing a murder mystery, I'm not one of these creative sorts of writers who has no idea where it's going to take me or where I'm going to land or what direction I'm going. When I start writing the very first chapter, I know who did it, I know why they did it, I know how they did it, and I've blocked out each and every chapter with what is going to be revealed in that chapter, either a, a red herring or something actual. I have little rules for myself. I think if, if I'm going to honor my reader, I have to give them a fair shot to solve it, mm -hmm. and I have to also make it puzzling enough that they usually don't. But it can't be unsolvable, mm -hmm. or I, I haven't, I've robbed them of the fun. Right. Because my thought as the reader is racing the detective or the sleuth to solve it by the end. Before the revelation, they are trying to figure it out for themselves. Yeah. And that's the real experience that I'm giving them. And so when I have a pertinent clue, like the clue, that will give the whole thing away if they frame that one clue properly, and I always have at least one, I like to mention it at least three times. Mm -hmm. Because I feel if I slip it in too subtly, or if it's too under the carpet when it's mentioned, they're going to feel jaded at the end. Yeah. They're going to feel a little jipped if they get to the last page and say, what, he had a brother? And they didn't even know that. <laughs> An evil um, twin. <laughs> right, right. You know, you have to, to give them a fair shot when they hear the end, they, they need to be going, oh, why didn't I see it? Not, what in the world are they talking about? Yeah. So for me, that's very important. And I actually write down, I'll, I'll put a little C1, C2, C3 for the three times I'm going to mention those pertinent clues mm -hmm. to make sure that three times they've had the opportunity so that when they do get to the end and they hear the big reveal, which hopefully they haven't guessed, and I hear they usually don't, um, 
when they get to that point, it really is a revelation of almost what they knew from the beginning. All the juxtaposition. Yeah. All of the best traditional mysteries that I've ever read follow pretty much exactly what you've just described. So if our listeners are astute, they're taking notes, or maybe they'll even play this episode again, because it's not just general interest. It's a real how-to. That is really wonderful. Thank you for that, Jennifer. And now, did you study this, or is it something that you've come up with and developed on your own? I very much enjoy patterns. I enjoy uh, systems in my day job. I do accounting. I really enjoy things that work properly. I enjoy things that start in chaos or apparent chaos or a mass of too much information. And I enjoy moving them through some sort of a process that makes them usable and logical and approachable at the end. And to me, that's very much what a murder mystery is. So I did take, uh, back in university, I took one creative writing class, which I absolutely loved. I was um, very pregnant at the time, and I couldn't fit in the chair. I had to sit sideways, and it was a hot summer, so it wasn't the ideal time to take class, mm-hmm. but um, it was a very enjoyable class. It was a treat for my summer. And then I got more practical, and I did a different major. But um, I think I sort of just noticed from reading so many of these books the ones I enjoyed the most, they'd given me fair warning. They, yeah. They'd given me all of the clues where if I had just added it up differently, I could have solved it. And sometimes I did. And that's what made it valuable to know sometimes you are going to solve it. Yeah. When and I was very young, when I was a kid, actually, it was Nancy Drew, of course, and the Bobsy twins and all of those. Yeah. But when I got a little, just a little bit older, like late teens, it was Agatha Christie. And you couldn't keep me apart from Agatha Christie. And... My landlord at the time, I was living in in the upper portion of a house, and my landlord was an elderly retired police officer who had a lady friend who would come to visit him every day. She never stayed over. They were quite proper. But she would come and spend the day with him, and they'd have lunch. And if I was home on the weekend, because I I was working, of course, if I was home on the weekend, um, we'd be chatting, and we'd be exchanging Agatha Christie books because she was a huge fan as well. And I do remember reading an interview with Agatha Christie, and that's why I am so certain that the outline you've given on how to do this is the correct one because it's almost exactly what she described. And I'm relying on my memory. There may be some differences because that was a long time ago. But it's very close, certainly, to what she described for traditional mystery writing. Yeah, it's definitely what she did in her books. You know, if you read enough of them. And, I mean, a, a lot of readers, I think, aren't reading with the idea of writing or creating it themselves. They're simply enjoying it yeah. Sense yeah. As um, a fictional adventure, which is really, it's really what I make. It's what people who read any genre are going for. Is they're going for a fictional escape from yeah. their daily lives. Yeah. And they choose a genre because they know there are certain parameters that they like that they enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so when people go for genre fiction, I think it's so important to give them what they want to give them what they're expecting that's why they chose the genre that's right and there's no right or wrong genre people there's nothing that says you've got to write traditional mysteries there's nothing that says that you've got to write uh, mysteries of any kind um you can write like uh one lady that i've interviewed recently you can write a memoir you can write uh, true crime you can write anything your heart desires because for any genre 
there is going to be a reader. There really will. But you've got to give that reader what he or she expects from your genre. That, so that's quite true. Yeah, and not suddenly become stayed halfway through. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've always wanted to do that, to write the perfect chaos, and I, I may do that one day. Um, I just, I have a concept, I have an idea that's been kind of percolating for quite a while on that subject, and uh, it would be quite different from what you're doing, I know, but it's still quite legitimate, you know. To create the perfect chaos, I mean, I would have to let go of so many of the regulations that my mind adheres to. And I think that would be fun, yes. you know? Um, right. And then, of course, the reader has to agree to be very vulnerable to follow you down that path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sort of the Ned Stark moment, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, without, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be writing Game of Thrones, of course, you know, there's only one writer of Game of Thrones, and I'm not even really interested in writing that particular genre. But the idea of, hey, I really didn't see that coming, that that really does intrigue yeah. me, you know. Um, now, Barker Rain Press is, uh, is your publisher, is that correct? Barking Rain Press. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I said that wrong. How did you come to find uh, Barking Rain Press? And um, can you tell me what the process of publishing entailed? Um, yes, I found Barking Rain Press, um, I think as most people do. When I, I first started submitting books, so when my, when my children were very young, I, I did some picture books. And I didn't know back then that writers were not the artists and vice versa, so I, would, I used to draw my own, and I would, about every six months, submit two or three. Stop. Yeah. So I would, I would write these picture books, and about twice a year, kind of when I build up my time and my momentum and emotionally fortify myself for rejection, I would send them out, and then I would hear nothing back. And I did this about twice a year, and I wrote different things as my kids got older. It was always influenced by what I was reading to them, and I just enjoy writing, so I, I would write if I were alone. Mm -hmm. And I would do this, then when my children got older and didn't want me to read to them anymore, I went back to what I love reading, which is the murder mysteries, and I started writing those. And then I started finishing full-length books, and I had sent out, the same sort of pattern, about twice a year, I'd kind of send out a wave to different publishers or agents who I didn't know, and then, of course, hear nothing back, just mm -hmm. crickets. You send it out, you, you throw your, your passionate work into black hole and, <laughs> and then you keep writing because you enjoy writing and you do it anyway about six months later you kind of fortify yourself again and you go through the process so um for me barking rain press they are a small independent non-profit publisher they're located in washington state and of course i've got a sweet spot for washington state and that's how i came across them and um it was the very end of their submission period when i found them they only had at the time i think two a year now I'm not sure how they do it now, but they only had two a year, and I think it was the last two days or the last day before the window closed. Wow. And I just powered through, put my whole family on hold, said, leave me alone, and I got everything ready because, of course, when you submit, they're usually quite specific about what they want, how many pieces, and in what format, this sort of thing. And put it all together in the 
package that they wanted and sent it off to them. And um, a few months later, I got the very happy news that they wanted to publish me. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So, that is just truly a wonderful story. I, I, I really like that. And have they been good to work with? Because I, I have heard good things about them. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy them very much. Like I say, they are a small publisher, so they're very um, personable. They're busy. I think like most publishers, sometimes they can take you know a couple days to get back to you, and I try not to bug them too much. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know they're juggling just I don't even want to imagine how much they're juggling. The little bit that I see, the tip of the iceberg that I'm aware of, is enough to make my head spin. Yeah. So um, they're really busy. Uh, but yeah, they're great. They're very personal. They're straightforward. And um, the, the process is something that, of course, I had no idea what to do. I spent all these years, and it was over 12 years, mm-hmm. um, trying to get published, kind of in this, in this slow little send-it-out, try-it way. Um, I'd spent so long trying to get published, and I'd given no thought to what the actual process was like. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I initially got the, they told me they wanted to uh, publish me on the terms. They said, these are the things we want you to change. And I said, yes, ma'am, I will change those things. And they said, okay, then we want to publish you. So they gave me, it was a one-year contract. The first six months I was assigned to an editor. And we were responsible for going over the manuscript beginning to end, not Mm -hmm. three full times, three full sweeps. Not three sweeps of each chapter, but the entire thing, Mm -hmm. which makes a lot of sense when you think about it, but at the time I was confused. And so we did this, and then there were a couple of delays that, you know, just with the publisher and with other projects that were going on. So what should have been, for the contract, a one-year process took, I think, closer to 15 or 16 months. Before the Hatbox murders finally came out. When it came out, I was so happy with the results. And I was so happy. And, you know, even throughout, they'd kind of touch base with me and they'd say, well, you know, we think we're going to have a little delay here. And I always said, look, I want the book to be right. I want it to be good. You are the professionals at making books and at knowing the market. And I have a huge amount of of faith and confidence in them. I told them this from the start. Mm -hmm. I'm the writer, I'm not the publishing expert. That's you. And so I really left a lot of it up to them, and I was really pleased with the results. Yeah. And it sounds to me, from what you're saying, if I'm hearing everything you're saying correctly, that one of your skills was realizing early on that if you want to work with a publisher, you really kind of do, you have to put yourself to some degree in their hands, and you have to trust their instructions. And if you don't trust their instructions, then you really can't work with them. Um I think this is a real key thing that people don't get. I mean, we're all free thinkers. People who write are free thinkers, and that's fine. And it's what you said about genre, too. Choose choose your genre based on what you want to write because, you know, that's where you're going to find yourself. But same thing choosing a publisher, I think, is um, you've got to be able to trust them. And if they ask you to do X, Y, and Z with the story then you've got to get off your butt and go do X, Y, and Z. And so many people don't get this. I can't tell you how much I've seen where the most simple instruction on a website is not followed. The most simple, you know. And out of maybe 30 communications that you receive, only one is actually savvy enough to have gone to the website, seen the instruction, and said, as per your instructions, you know. Right. I mean, right. and yet this isn't this isn't rocket science. This no. is very straightforward. And no. I, th- I think it was actually my publisher who's um, 
the head publisher at Bark and Rain is a wonderful woman by the name of Sherry Gormley, and I'm pretty sure it was on her personal website, on her blog, where she had a little explanation about that, and she said, look, it's the first test. Yeah. We're going to publish you. We want to know that you're savvy to figure out Dropbox, that you can communicate in emails, that you know yeah. how technology works, or you're willing to learn. Yeah. If you can't get through this first hurdle, that's not a very good sign no. that we're going to get this process finished. no. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't tell me that, uh, don't tell me please that your manuscript isn't on a word document because I, I really don't want to hear that, you know? (laughs) I mean, and I think it comes down to the difference of if somebody genuinely wants to get published or if they're really writing for themselves and it's absolutely respectable to write for yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. That's right. Yeah, you're working with people, so you've got to be professional. As soon as you put yourself into a business, you are working with people. And to work with people, we have certain parameters within any industry. There is a language within any industry, not just this one. Steel mills have a language, you know. Um, Railroad uh, conductors have a language and a set of protocols for safety reasons. Um, everybody in the book industry has a language that we speak to each other and we have expectations. Now, they may vary from publisher to publisher slightly, but for the most part, they are industry norms. And if you're going to put yourself in the industry, you've got to be a professional, rise above your own little knee-jerk reactions and be prepared to speak the right language and, and move within the norms. Yeah. Right in front of you, up in center. Yeah. Because being published, um, it, it, you don't have any pride left. Yeah. They're going to take any ego that you had, that you were a good writer, let alone that you might have been a great writer, and they're going to rip it apart. They're going to yes. point out very nicely <laughs> in my case. They're going to point out ridiculous mistakes, embarrassing mistakes, yeah. things where I would just look at it and say, how could I have, how could I have written this garbage? Yeah. I'm so embarrassed. Yeah. But you don't do that again, though, right? If you're somebody, if you're somebody who can learn, you don't do that again. Yeah, um, Jennifer, it's just yeah, it's just wonderful talking to you. I really love the nuts and bolts approach that you've brought for our listeners. That's really terrific. What are you working on right now? to cut up too many cadavers, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> I, have, I, I have scenes in my plot, but the sex and the violence happens off stage, and 
what yeah. I enjoy. So yeah. um, it's still going to be the 1950s, but it is going to be different characters. I don't want to talk about it too much, but I'm getting more into some, um, you know, racial minority groups, which is a very tricky thing to tackle when you're writing something historical, how yeah. to show respect yeah. and be accurate and not make it the absolute centerpiece of a, of a character. Yeah. So that's kind of my new challenge that I'm working on there. Um, and I think with the second series, I might try to branch out and go with a different publisher just so I can gain experience mm-hmm. and just so I have the experience of working with different people. But certainly for the Elliott Bay Mystery Series, I'm going to keep that as much as, as Barking Rain wants me. I'm going to keep those books going through them because they've done such a lovely job. Yes, yes. Yes, I think they really have. So thank you so much for joining us. And anyone who's interested in your mystery series, they can go to, I'm sure, Amazon.com and look for Jennifer Bird. Um, or to your website. I know yeah, I've, I've asked you to say it before. Or to your publisher, Barking Rain Press. Um, I know you've given us your website, but give it to us one more time. Absolutely. It's just my name, Jennifer Bird, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-B-E-R-G dot M-E. Dot Emmy. Very good. Thank you so much, yep. Jennifer. I really appreciate your talking with us today. It's absolutely my pleasure, Donna. I'd like to send a big Dead to Rights thank you to Jennifer Berg for joining us today on the podcast. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. Likewise, my husband Alec is on Alex underscore Carrick on Twitter or at his website, AlexCarrick.com. Join us next week when we speak with Denise Wilson, Canadian crime writer. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, who also brought us the original story scoring music. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We really love sharing this time with you, and we'll see you next week. Dusty road, man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rot.